introducing Dr. Abigail Burnett, lecturer in medieval Celtic at the University of Edinburgh. She has a wide range of academic interests, currently concentrating on medieval Gaelic manuscript compilation and medieval Gaelic literary and educational practice. A special concern of hers has been the interaction between Latin and vernacular literary culture. And she has written on the remarkable grammatical text, Aurecet Nenegus, and its associated commentary. This morning, she will share with us some of her insights on Compilatio and the creation of Lever Nehidra, in which she will build on her article in Eulidia II, where she examined manuscripts in relation to the compilation of Thaunbo Kulnia. You should have handouts uh, for this and the next lecture in your folder. Thank you. Thanks very much, Fergus. Um, the, the handout we won't be getting to for a couple of pages, so you've got time to rootle around in your packs and, and find it. But it, I think it will be useful, I hope, when we get to that point. So thank you very much for having me, and thank you all for being here first thing in the morning. It's a wonderful celebration of a manuscript that gives us one of our most important windows into the interests and concerns of medieval Irish literary culture. What I'm going to be talking about today is, I suppose, that literary culture in rather a practical sense. The gathering, organising and putting together of a manuscript is, after all, a hands-on undertaking. But it's an undertaking which takes place at the heart of a wider literary enterprise. The physical production of manuscript literature is perhaps the central act of medieval literary activity. It both shapes and is itself shaped by the broader literary culture. So the issues I'm going to touch on today are ones which, though rooted in the physical manuscript, will, I hope, provide us with insights into a number of other, number of other aspects of the literary concerns and practice of the producers and users of Lebanahira. Compilatio is a term which invites a broad and sometimes varied interpretation, and the modern concept of compilation tends to focus on the selective editorial activity involved in gathering texts and putting them together, but medieval usage touched on a number of other conceptual issues in addition. One key area relates to the technical, so the visual or structural aspects of organising text and commentary and presenting it to the reader. Ordinatio or paratexts like contents lists, chapter headings, indices, highlighting and glossing of textual elements and other visual aids to accessing and, and navigating textual material. These are developments in manuscript layout and, in text, and textual arrangement which aim to assist the reader to follow an argument, to grasp the intensio actoris and to locate points of special interest within the text. Within this context, there's an increasing theoretical interest on the part of manuscript producers in the ordinatio partium, in which the partes doctrinae were subordinated to chapters, chapters to complete books, and books to the complete work. That gets reflected by visual and presentational aspects of textual production, and in particular, um, and in particular as we'll see later, the use of tituli to introduce, divide, and define the different sections of the text. Now, these kinds of concerns tend to be secondary to the core tasks of identifying and distinguishing between scribal hands, codicological analysis, and things like that. But they can, nevertheless, provide a useful window into the concerns and interests of manuscript creators. Layout, presentation, decoration, and so forth supplies essential information which contributes to the understanding of the individual texts and provides clues as to how the text was understood clues to scribal behaviour, and clues to the historical and cultural circumstances of the book's production. These paratextual features have been the subject of significant theoretical advances in manuscript studies. There's been a burgeoning of interest in the way which we can use this material support for engaging with the text 
as a guide to the relationships between scribes and their audiences and to the varied practices of reading in manuscript culture. Interest in these aspects of compilatio has grown in the context of an increased awareness of the complexity and variety of the nature of compiled miscellaneous or perhaps better non-homogeneous manuscripts and what that means for how we read their contents. There's been a burgeoning of medieval manuscript scholarship on these matters over the past couple of decades. Parallel disciplines like medieval French and English manuscript studies have set out a number of new approaches to this kind of manuscript material, stressing the distinctions to be made between miscellanies, composite books, and multi-text books, and highlighting the role of readers and users of manuscripts, as well as producers, in creating and determining their meaning. What these approaches highlight in different ways is the need to look at manuscripts as evolving, not static. There are different stages of compilation, of interventions by compilers and readers, changing reception and use, and these all contribute to a sense of the manuscript as process, not finite product. Manuscripts can mean different things at different times, in different arrangements, to different users, and it's in part through attention to physical aspects of the manuscript, its apparatus, mise en page, and arrangement, that we can begin to attempt an investigation of some of these varied meanings through what Lee Patterson terms an archaeology of reading. It's in the light of these approaches that I'd like to suggest some ways in which our understanding of LU can be enhanced by attention to a number of issues falling under the broad heading of compilatio. There are, of course, a number of caveats. We're constrained as ever by uncertainties regarding the shape and state of the manuscript at different stages. Much of the collation is not certain. And as we heard from Beth yesterday, the order and nature of scribal activity is considerably more complex than we've been accustomed to thinking. It's probably impossible to construct a secure chronology for some of the textual interventions I'll be looking at, and we always need to be, needful, need, need to be mindful of lacunae caused by the evidence lost along with the sections of the manuscript that have gone astray. Nevertheless, I'll touch on a number of areas. We'll look at some examples of layout, paratexts, and textual in interventions which both indicate the concerns and interests of the scribes and guide or shape the reader's experience, so ordinatio, or what Keith Busby describes as reader enticement or reader manipulation. And I'll suggest ways in which we might read these diachronically, investigating possible changes in presentation and emphasis over time, and also across different parts of the manuscript, looking at variations in the use of compilatio features in different texts and sections. And finally, I'll ask whether we can use these variations in practice to contribute to our understanding of the status both of LU as book and of its different constituent sections. So let's begin then with an examination of the ways in which LU presents and structures textual material, engaging with and responding to the reader. And I'll start with some examples of the ordering and demarcation of text. Here's a sample page showing some of the familiar features we associate with the LU presentation of Time Cooling Air in particular. This is page 59, and I've deliberately chosen as unexciting an example as possible as I can to start with to try and give you a baseline. Overall, the page is characterised by the familiar use of enlarged initials marking the beginnings of paragraph sections and introducing direct speech. So here in column A, here, um, just, just there where I've got that arrow, um, begins some direct speech. Um, and then that, that's Fergus talking. And up here, um, there, um, it's got these enlarged initials. Um, there's also an interlinear title up here. Um, so that's the Magnivrada in introducing the section containing the boyhood deeds of Cuchulain and marking a clear separation between it and the preceding section. And finally, we see the equally characteristic of side titles. So here, is that, yeah, and here, 
marking, um, defining the sections as if Namakriza and Kasyohin Makdersak Pekonkabar and so. If we think of this in terms of a programme of reading, we can see the interest in providing structure, definition, drawing the reader's eye to sections of interest. This type of layout also lends itself to the presentation and organisation of more discursive types of textual analysis. So, for instance, on page 57, we see the same type of marginal box used to present a discussion of an alternative identification of the characters who preceded the men of Connacht on the way to Irad Kulen, or on page 58, a more intertextual piece of commentary reflecting on Cuchulain's reckoning of the numbers of the Connacht army by presenting it as one of a triad of three difficult reckonings, the others being the reckoning made by Luke of the Florians in the Battle of Magturas, and the reckoning of the ar army in Brisbane Dadelga made by Engel. The visual highlighting of the layout of the commentary passages suggests a concern to make this kind of analysis accessible to the reader. For us, it's an indication not just of the concerns of the producers of the manuscript and their approach to its content, but also of the anticipated interests of the users of the manuscript. Textual variation, connections to the wider literary tradition, these form part of the intellectual apparatus with which to approach the text of Time Kulinger. And these, these are the kinds of issues which are also visible in the kind of text-critical features I was dealing with in the Ulidia 2 uh, article on Campalazio and Timbukulinga. These concerns are also visible in layout, which coordinates the use of paratextual and intratextual features. Um, and this is where you need the first page of your handout. I'm going to go through this in some detail, so bear with me. Um, here, the side title, Imrol Belagyoen in So, introduces the story explaining the name of the miscast at Belagyoen. We're given a brief account of two mistaken throws at a parley between cousins. Dorcha McMagach cast a spear at Fiacha Fieldana Dimbreis and hits Duvthach Doilulath instead. And then Duvthach in return aims a spear at Manya Andoy and hits Dorcha instead, and they both die. Um, and then we're told, hence the name Imrol Belagyoen, the miscast at Belagyoen. We're then given an alternative version in which Marnia and Diermut Metkonkova fail to negotiate a settlement between the Ulster and Connacht sides and resort to an exchange of weapons. Each hits the other, they both die, and a skirmish follows in which the three score from each side are killed. And this variant is introduced in the text with a typical phrase guiding the reader to an alternative version, not iste ata imron bela marked visually by an enlarged and rubricated siglum for the no, that's the L with a line through it, just here. Um, so that the eye is easily led to the beginning of the new version of the explanation. Um, so here you are here, or according to another version, the origin of the name Emerald Belagyoen is as follows. Now I think this is interesting because it implies a hierarchical approach to the use of visual textual apparatus. The alternative source or reasoning doesn't require its own title as it's still dealing with the same conceptual section. But the reader in search of narrative variants is still helped to find the relevant information by the visual cues placed in the text itself. We might explore these visual cues still further. If we look at the use of rubrication within the text in this passage, we see that the rubricated letters seem to be used at moments where there's some value in indicating a shift in focus, speaker, or some other point of information useful to the reader in their navigation of the text. And I've attempted to represent this in the first item in your handout in the transcription, um, where I've used different underlinings and boldings as an attempt to try and categorise the different types of sense break. That's just my way of trying to understand what's going on. That's not there in the manuscript. In the manuscript, the shading's the same as far as I can see in each of the uses. Let's look at how some of them work. Technical information is highlighted. So, iste ata imrol belagyoen at the end of the first section, or koned imrol belagyoen anam namagnishin, so that imrol belagyoen is the name of that place at the end of the second section, both introduced by highlights. And at the very end of the section, there's an additional identification, iste ata ardindirma, hence the name ardindirma, also marked with red shading. 
In the dialogue between Marnia and Dermot preceding that last statement, we see rubricated letters used in the first and last phrases of individual items of direct speech. So, Ergev Markaf Uev is, where is it? Um, lost it. Here we are. Um, here, um, and then um, the next phrase is also rubricated. So, Kuji Marnia, there. Um, and then, oh, hang on, sorry. And then, Ragatza. Um, Marnia replies, and then when he's been off to go and try and get the get the deal from Melody, he comes back and says, "Neither for Melody a niche." Oh, sorry, it's it, when I when I touch the key, it keeps jumping onto the next slide. So you see that, but the but the but the second section of the speech is rubricated as well. Um, and then Diermich's final reply, he says, "Jen of Koyf Claus." The um, let us exchange weapons, and that is also um, here we are, that red one there, and then the second part of the phrase, Monsieur Fairlat, is rubricated there. Um, oh, sorry, this keeps coming back. Right, what about the other examples? I wonder whether we can categorize them as indicating a shift of focus in the passage. So the very first rubricated letter, Fiecha Fildana, Divraith, Dolois. Fika came to have speech with the son of his mother's sister, sets up the premise of the episode. Um, the next phrase, specifies the participants, and the next, indicates the start of the action. Um, and we might see the Chig Dirmich and Kondrekat Irov in the second passage as similarly marking shifts in action. So, how should we think of this use of shading? I think we might usefully call these types of rubrication something like discourse organising marks. They're not used exclusively as speech marks, punctuation, or section breaks, but they do perhaps include all those things within their possible range of application. In any case, they clearly work alongside the more overt visual structuring of the text and respond in a similar way to both the interpretational and pragmatic interests of the creators and users of the manuscript. It's not, of course, a fully worked out consistent system. I think even in this passage, there's some direct speech not marked. But I think that chimes with possibly comparable usage in other manuscript traditions. Colette Moore, discussing the variety of methods, including this type of rubrication used for marking speech or changes of perspective by medieval English scribes, points out that just because this kind of discourse organisation was possible didn't mean that it became conventional and that practice varied widely even between sections of the same manuscript. Okay, if we turn now to some pages where the visual aspects of compilatio are even more marked, we get additional, sometimes intriguing, insights into the application of this kind of intellectual apparatus. The most marked examples of textual layout and structuring of reading can be seen in the presentation and organisation of the various lists incorporated into Kleinbuchuninger. Visually, the form of the layout seems to derive from canon tables used to guide readers to corresponding passages in different books of the Bible. And while current approaches to list theory encourage us to think of lists in narrative in terms of poetics or as mnemonic devices, what's clear from the presentation in these examples is the need to structure them as clearly accessible, easily navigable forms of reference. I think this is particularly striking for modern readers because the kind of information they contain tends not to be the type of material that's privileged in current readings of medieval Irish texts. So, for example, we have lists of place names along the route that the Connachter took from Kroeken to Kulinger um, here. Interestingly, in this one, the bottom of the box, so the bottom of column two here, oh, sorry, 
um, contains not just the list contents, but also technical commentary defining the boundary between the introductory titulras and the following section, in scale ir nur, also incorporated within the visually uh, highlighted layout. Other kinds of lists, we've got a list of the feats that Cahullan was practicing when Kur Magdal last went to challenge him, so the ball feet, the blade feet, the feet with horizontally held shield, the javelin feet, the rope feet, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, And that they're all set out in this kind of, um, this layout too. We've also got here the side title used up here, Chivna Kles, given in addition to the marked layout. And it's particularly interesting in this case because it comes effectively in the middle of the sentence so clearly the distinction between sections being created here is responding to sort of information-based issues rather than syntactic or purely narratively-based grounds. And then finally, for this lot of lists, we've got the enumeration of the deaths of the chiefs of those who fell in Sesrech Breschliga, the sixfold slaughter. Again, introducing this highlighted organisation of the names in the boxes, we've got additional intertextual and text-critical information comparison to the other innumerable slaughters at Imschliga Glenavna and the battle at Garech and Irgarech and the provision of an alternative tradition that Lou fought alongside his son at the battle. And this is Isev at Beret Aralia here. Um, and then we've got this great long list of, of, uh, of people who died. The number is not known. It's not possible to count how many of the common soldiery died, but lots of, lots of leaders' names, two men called Kruaev, two called Kalas, two called Kier, two called Kier, etc., etc. Now, all, all this places the use of the highlighted list format in the context of wider critical activity and approaches to the text and encourage us to pay, encourages us to pay attention to the material presented in this highlighted form as significant to the creators and users of the manuscript. The visual interventions associated with Compilatio demonstrate, then, a variety of types of critical engagement with the material the text contains, presenting an image not just of the planning and structure imposed by the manuscript's creators upon its contents, but also of the experience of its users in reading and working with them. And they should be, in this case, a key element in our assessment of the origins and function of the manuscript. There's some immediate questions about this, though. How far are these elements that we've been looking at, A, static, or B, consistently applied by different scribes or across the different sections of the manuscript? Should we look for the genesis of these kinds of compilatio features purely in scribal practice, or are there elements which respond to the specific nature and requirements of individual texts? And, you know, other questions like that. A lot more work needs to be done to establish secure answers to some of these issues, but I'll present some preliminary observations now. First, I'd like to look at distribution. Um, one of the notable features of the LU approach to mise en page is the use of marginal titles subdividing the text into chapters or sections, usually enclosed in a linear box. And these are particularly interesting because the side titles aren't found in comparator manuscripts like the Book of Leinster, where subtitles are interlinear and there's, there's less use of titles in any case, and they certainly don't have boxes around them. Um, so here's, here's an example of the LU style from page 82. This is the final page of LU's text of Time Bokulinger. The two, two scribal hands at work here, M and H1. Now, these side titles are found, with one exception that I think I've found, only in three texts in NU. In Time of Kuninger, where they're used extensively to organise and structure the multiple sections and episodes of the narrative. In Togogrivna da Derga, where they're used as a guide to the different rooms, or Indava in Inkel's description of the hostel. And in a final few examples in Mesca Ullas. Now, these three texts are significantly longer than some of the others in the manuscript, and one might propose that the use of a visual tool that's hierarchically distinct from the usual interlinear title used to introduce a complete text reflects the increased requirement for navigational aids in lengthy narratives. 
We can see them then as a pointer to the kinds of reading that may have been particularly relevant to these kinds of texts, the need to locate episodes or specific items of interest, what Keith Busby describes as fragmented reading. But stylistically, we can make a distinction between the presentation of these side titles in sections written by hand M and in those written by H1. The side titles in M sections of the text are given an additional prominence by being enclosed in red ink boxes, as we've seen. Those in the sections written by H1 are not. See, for example, this intercalated leaf in the hand of H1, page 71 and 2, which has a number of short episodes of time cooling, each marked with a marginal side title, but without the additional highlighting provided by an outline. Um, there's also fairly minimal use of shaded letters. I'm not sure if this is relevant or not. Or we could look to another in intercalated leaf in the section containing Togol Brithna da Derga, where scribe H1 has used side titles to list the different sections describing each of the rooms. Again, no boxes outlining them. And if we move on to the following folio, we can see where M's hand begins again, um, just up here. There's, there's the last bit of H there and a side title with no box. And then M takes over and the side titles start having boxes again. But I don't think that we can therefore make a simple equation between scribe M using boxes and scribe H1 not. Because here I think we need to start looking diachronically at the manuscript. Um, first of all, if we look at the overall aspect of the page... I'd like to suggest that the boxes around side titles seem to be less formally executed than the layout we see in the main columns of text. And I wonder whether they should be seen as secondary additions. The shape of the boxes is clearly responding to the shape of the text they enclose. And if we focus in with a close-up view, I think it's pretty clear that there are places where the rubrication goes over the top of the pre-existing text or is otherwise dependent on the shape of the adjacent initial. One can make similar observations about the boxes drawn around interlinear titles, often as in these examples from the section of the time called Fagbel and Tarev and the section of Tokvag Evera there on page 121, you see the rubrication running over the top of the script above and below. And in the second example, you can see the box running over and interfering with some perfectly good display layout that's there already. Um, I think, I'm not sure how well it shows up on screen, but I think the ink looks to me to be a different colour there as well. Um, and in the case of interlinear titles, you can get boxes... Um, in sections written by H1. So here on page 39, um, there's a rather faded box here, which you can just see the outline of. Um, it's easier to see in close-up. It'd be nice to look at the real thing. Um, th that's around the title of Adedechach Makmarada there. And at the beginning of Sergleka Kongulun, there's an example which must be secondary because the ink's the same as the additional note here in a separate hand, telling us that the text comes from the Schlicht, or version in the Leverbuide Slanya and the box extends to surround the note too. So that, those two things must have happened at the same time. So what does this mean for the way we understand the order of events and the roles of those who worked on the text? If we do propose that the rubricated boxes are in some cases at least secondary, I'm not sure if there's any way in which we can determine at what stage or by whom they were added on a given page. It's difficult to distinguish between an original scribe going back over his own work or a later reader, compiler, or commentator doing the equivalent of marking up his or her copy with a highlighter pen. Possibly the lack of formality might mitigate against the former. The second invites a whole range of intriguing speculations regarding what the occasions and causes might have been. I'm not going to go there for a moment. Um, you can talk about it in questions if you like. One might also have to allow for the possibility that different texts, parts of texts, or sections of the manuscript acquired their boxes at different times, should we envisage a number of different strata box drawing. The red ink which is used oxidizes irregularly, so the different colours visible now aren't necessarily a guide to individual episodes, 
but there do seem to be different styles and thicknesses of line drawing apparent, and one might at least be able to propose a disjunction, however envisaged, between these phases of activity and the involvement of H1 with the sections in which the Timber-Kuhlinger type use of side titles are found. Um, but I think you know, we've got to remember, it's not just in, in H1 section of the book that we need to be alive to the possibility of different layers and periods of activity going on in relation to the text. One final thought on this point before I leave the boxes behind. The single example I found where we do see a side title um, in a section written by H, which has a box around it, is on page 82, this page we were looking at earlier, um, the final page of Time Kulinger that we were looking at. So here's H1 starting voyage there, and there's a side, side title with a box around it. Um, now that's H writing in Resura in that, oh, sorry, in that in that box. So it you know, maybe that he's filling in a box that pre-exists his work on the page. But the colour of the ink here looks to me strikingly similar to that found on page 95 over here, where again there's a clear distinction between the bright red of this particular box and the other examples of the page. And I wonder whether this might be the starting point for identifying the work of an individual rubricator. Um, the exposure on the photo is a bit different, which might skew this again. I think looking at the ink, looking at the original may be helpful here. Um, other diachronic issues I don't have time to explore further here, but we see H adding side titles sometimes to other people's work. There's an example on page 65, and I wonder whether there are other titles, both interlinear and side titles, which may be secondary because they're very squished up to fit space available. Um, sometimes the ink on side titles looks much lighter, and I don't know whether that's because it's a different ink bottle, somebody's doing it at a different time, or simply because when you're using a smaller nib, for the smaller letter size that you use for these things, the saturation is different. Again, you know, all these things could be explored further. I hope it's been apparent for what I've been for what I've shown so far that the particular types of features. Um, oh, sorry, I've missed a bit. <laughs> I go back um, just to tell you why I'm interested in, in looking at these these rather pernickety issues. Um, but I think it's because it's through this stratigraphic approach to the physical manuscript that we can begin to create a way into an understanding of how manuscripts were not just designed, but also thought of, read, used, possibly even copied. Um, and I think the things that I've been trying to look at in terms of, of features to point out are striking because they're all things which are really fundamentally dependent upon, dependent upon and engaged with the texts themselves. They're, they're, they're mediating texts, they're presenting the, the material inside them by using these strategies of layout and structure. Um, and I think they're all issues which are of particular relevance to the texts themselves and the ways in which those were used and understood. But if we move to a wider structural approach and ask how these kinds of issues might intersect with the compilation of, and the planning of the manuscript as a whole, I think it's striking that the particular interest in subdivision and subordination that we see in the mise en page of Time Kulinger, Togo Brithendadjerga and Fleth Brickrend is contained not just within the limits of those texts, but also within the physical boundaries of two of the gatherings about which Powell and Oskamp in their various analyses of the collation of the manuscript were most certain. Um, and number two on your handout lists the text more or less according to, to, the, to their attempts to determine the collation. Now, there are lots of caveats here because lots of this is very speculative and uncertain, particularly because so many of the leaves overall are missing. But the three gatherings between page 27 and 112, which I put in bold on your handout, do seem to be relatively secure. I've not broken this down by scribal activity, partly for um, reasons of space, but partly because of the H issues. Um, and I didn't, when I was doing this, have Beth's guide to which H is which, so I've just given him an asterisk everywhere he appears in this list. 
Peter Gumber, in his analysis of the methodological strategies required for the analysis and understanding of the non-homogeneous codex, placed great stress on the significance of boundaries between texts, stylistic models, and or scribal stints, coinciding with boundaries between gatherings. And he calls, he calls this particular kind of disjunction a caesura. He stresses the need to consider the resulting codicological units separately and to take this unit as the basis for the analysis both of form and content, even in cases where it may have been possible that different sections were produced in the same scriptorium and ultimately designed to be bound together from the start. So he describes those would be homogenetic units as opposed to allogenetic units where sections get bound together that may not have been originally planned to, to, to end up in the same place. Um, I'm not sure we know enough about this manuscript yet to decide what we've got in every single case. But the important thing from that reading is that the unit, rather than the codex, should be our starting point for interpretation. So time which is uh, pages 55 to 82 and is an independent unit of this sort, um, has this extensive use of structural information which reflects the sort of composition and the creation of the unit independently. We can also look at the gathering containing Togobrith and Dadjerga and Flez Brickland as counting as another unit. It's again using similar strategies throughout the span of that, of that section. Um, so I think we look at the cohesive use of distinctive compilatio features within each of this, these units as consistent with the view that these are things that we need to consider um, separately as a starting point. And it also invites us to explore the possibility of equivalent distinctive reading practices associated with the sections. And I suppose I'd just say that Time of Cooling as a high-status, complex text is an obvious candidate for this kind of intensely focused reading practice. And I think perhaps, too, we should think of the first section written mostly by A as, as distinct from other groupings, though there are serious issues with lost material in relation to that one. Um, about the rest, we need to do a lot more work on this kind of thing. But... I think we should perhaps be encouraged in following this line of approach by remembering that the first page of Time Bukulinga, page 55, is worn and dirty and bears all the signs of having circulated as the outside leaf of an independent booklet for a while. And I've got my suspicions too about the first page of Fish Al of Nine, which is the first page of the second gathering according to Powell's collation. St Andrews University have developed a dirtometer for measuring the precise degree of grubbiness of a manuscript page. I think it'd be really interesting to get a lend of it for things like this. Um, Okay, so if compilatio features may be text or booklet specific, what happens when we examine their presentation and function elsewhere in Nebuchadnezzar? While many comparable strategies are made use of to a greater or lesser extent, we should always be aware that the planning, execution and adaptation of contents and mise en page may have reflected different priorities and different kinds of concerns. I don't have time to give a full account of the variations in practice and usage across all the different sections of the manuscript, but a few illustrations may indicate the kinds of issues that we should bear in mind. So in the first section of the manuscript, mainly written by Scribe A, we see in the narrative texts that the, the interlinear titles, which we're familiar, familiar with, are used as subtitles for sections as well as for main titles. I think they're actually boxes here. They're very, very faded, but they're just about visible. I think it doesn't come up well on the screen. The second one, you may just, just about be able to, to see there's a kind of trace there. I don't know whether that's just down to um, very, very faded ink or whether somebody's scrubbed it off. Um, so we, we get, you know, from this page, we see there are different ways of dealing with hierarchy and, and, and subordination of sections. But if we look at the section containing Abracol and Kilia and its commentary, you can see that the primary focus of the layout is not this kind of subdivision. 
primary thing that they're up to is trying to enable the reader to distinguish between lemma and commentary, just as in other manuscript versions of this text. And there is a titulus, there is a little title, but it's really very subordinate in terms of the overall aspect of the page. So content's driving a lot of this. And I think formatting and mise-en-page responding to content also visible um, in one of the first texts in the next section as currently constituted. So this is um, The Voyage of Mayabuin. Um, the text begins on an intercalated leaf in the hand of H2 and M in which these features aren't present, but on the subsequent pages, so starting from page 23, which you've got here, we see that the subdivision of the text is organised by the provision of marginal chapter numbers, perhaps responding to the episodic nature of the narrative. But you could equally argue that the episodic nature would make it an ideal candidate for the kind of hierarchical subcategorization that we see in Kleinbuchulinger. So there's perhaps some real difference in critical assessment apparent here. Um, they've also got boxes around them for the chapter numbers, which also look secondary to me, but um, there you are. So in the next section, um, here's a bit of Sjöglega Kongulen, page 50, we see enlarged letters and letter shading techniques being used not to structure prose, but in a more familiar way as a means to enhance the presentation of verse. So here it's indicating the beginning quatrains, each of those coloured and enlarged letters. There's the first of the two lines there. Um, that's Fan's poem in Sjöglega um, Kongulen. And then in a final example... Um, this is from the last section where the nature of the gathering is very, very uncertain. Um, this is H5 working. Here's a page of Shibur Karpat Kon Kulen, um, and the verse is highlighted in the way that we've just seen on the preceding page with enlarged and coloured letters. Um, but here's a list. This is two versions of the genealogy of Kukulen. And I think the layout is really downplayed in comparison to the ones that we saw in the section containing Time Bukulinger. And the interlinear subtitle introducing it is hardly distinct at all, and that's it up there. It's not really very different from the rest of the text. Um, there is a sort of thing that looks a bit like a side title there, but it's actually a note um, explaining this, the list in the right-hand side, which is an alternative genealogy. And so that's just says, Velita, Genalogia, Kukuland, there. Right. Okay. So in that brief tour, I hope I've given you a rough idea of how different the aspect of the page can be in different parts of the manuscript, for reasons above and beyond the variations in scribal hand. I think the key thing that I'd like to say is that we shouldn't take these elements of ordinatio and mise en page and the different ways in which they're used as self-evident. They're a significant part of the makeup of LU and offer valuable insights in the into the attitudes and concerns of its producers and users, as well as into their methodologies of creating and reading text. The variations with which they're used in different texts and different sections of the manuscript, as well as by different contributors, should remind us to be wary of treating LU as a unitary or static construct, either in its current state or in our attempts to recreate its earlier forms. And whether we're interested in thematic strands of its contents, the activities or approaches of particular identifiable scribes, or strategies for reading and interpreting its texts, we need to remain alert to the intersections between form, structure and content. Thank you.